Welcome to the STEMness Podcast, a podcast produced at the Cohen College of Engineering at the University of Houston, aimed at celebrating trailblazing women in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You will hear industry leaders, engineering researchers, and female faculty members at the Cullen College talk about their journeys in STEM and how their work impacts the next generation of female STEMinists. I'm Michelle Patrick Kruger. I'm a PhD student in electrical engineering, and I'm one of your hosts for the STEMinist podcast. Thank you for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, this is Michelle Patrick Kruger. Today I'm here with Nellie Chappelle White, the CEO of JustTech. Nellie, you've done a lot of things, so I'm going to let you tell people the path that you've taken to become CEO. Thank you, Michelle. And first, I want to say thank you to you and your audience for having me. I really appreciate that, and it's an honor to be here. And so when I get that question, I think, oh my goodness, it, it was a it's been a long windy path, so I have to warn your listeners now, it's like, get popcorn, get some tea, because <laughs> it's not linear, it definitely is not that. So, um, but looking back, you know, going back to high school, I would start there, is that I, I don't know, well, even before high school, I had the feeling that I wanted to be a business owner or either run someone's business. I don't know why, how that came over me, don't know. Um, but going into high school, I just took a real strong liking to accounting and took all the business classes I could. And so I thought, you know what, well, being an accountant, that's in an, an industry where you can help people with their business. You can have your own business as a, as a CPA, as a, you know, have your own firm and do things like that. So. I was real interested in accounting. So I went down that that path thinking that's where I was gonna go. And thankfully for me, my senior year in high school, I was in a program where I could work half a day and I, and I actually ended up getting a job at a bank and it was like the job everyone wanted, but they, they actually had someone already in that position, one student, and thankfully they thought I had strong enough skills and drive um, I, I made my way in there, and so they had they they actually agreed to have two students at the bank, and so uh, it kind of started from there. And it was so neat because I got to see how the bank operated. Because most people that walk in the bank, you see it as a customer, but behind the scenes, I worked in bookkeeping, and you get to see how the bank really runs as a business. You know, seeing how the general ledger is, and I, I was accounting. You know, loved accounting and seeing. You know, and writing those general ledger entries to make sure the cash help make sure the cash balance and reconciling people's checking account is all kinds of things I learned there. Customer service, many different things. So, uh, you know, that was very helpful. And on a little side note, it also led to me doing some fitness instructing, which was my first soiree into being like having a business or being self-employed. But that's a different story. We won't go down that right now. But but being in the bank, that really helped a lot. But essentially, or eventually, I got married uh, and my husband, we started moving around. We had to move around like every eight to 18 months or so. And so I, I was like, oh, I need to get some schooling in. I need to get, you know, and when you're moving around like that and it wasn't predictable, it was very unpredictable. So I took classes, accounting classes, um, business management. I love organizational behavior too, um, it, when I could. <laughs> depending on where we're at. And so I, I still stayed on the banking track. So I tried to um, get positions or uh, jobs uh, that were kind of banking related because I, again, I really like numbers and especially helping customers. So eventually we land in Louisiana 
And, and it was a, a place where, because he was in a management training program and he got his own store and we were able to actually settle down. And so there I worked at a bank and bank trust administration and 401k administration, which was kind of new to me. And that opened my eyes to something very, very um, amazing, I thought, because when you're doing retirement accounts and trusts and that type of thing, it's like really making, helping make an impact on people for them and their family, their destiny, basically into retirement. And it was like, wow, this is pretty powerful. I really like that. And so I did that for a while. And then we decided to start a family. And so that changes things a little bit. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be a mother, I really want to be able to be at home. And I don't know if I want to be working full time. So that was one of it. I ended up starting a desktop publishing business and, and did that. It was a small disadvantaged business. Um, woman-owned, uh, and I I did that in preparation for our daughter that was delivered later, and so uh, did that for a while, and a few a few years after that, we decided, you know, we, we really want to go back to Texas, and so in coming back to Texas, that's when, uh, and he was still with the same company, and I said, you know what, I don't know if a desktop publishing business will work in this market, because it was pretty, we were in the, the Clear Lake area of Houston, and, you know, no, I, I didn't know anyone. And so I'm like, you know what, I think I'll just, I, I don't, I didn't want to work. I, I, you know, I was like, I had fighting that, like, I don't know if I want to go back to work or it's been, it's something once you have your own business and you make your own hours and do all that. And it's like, you know what, I think I'll go ahead and, and work, but I'm going to take a job that's does not, is not that taxing on me and I can be the best mom ever, you know, it's like, you want to, you want to do that. And so then uh, it, it turned out that I, I got a position uh, at a, as a NASA contractor because we lived in the, the south part of Houston. And NASA was something I was always interested in. I never thought that my skill set would match there because I come from banking administration. It's like, where's that, you know? And, and the position that I, that I took eventually, it, it led to some financial analysis type of work. And that's what it was that I started off and there was that correlation with all of the things that I knew how to do and, and those skills and reconciliation. And because and at the bank, you know, you have to be to the pen. Everything has to balance. And, and government contracting at NASA and other federal agencies is very important uh, to the financial aspect of it, to the, the cost and financial reporting. And so I was like, OK, I had no idea that this is something that translates to being a NASA contractor. Then eventually also found out about program management. And in federal contracting, a program manager is basically the person who ensures that the team who's on a contract, that everything's performing well, the employees, the customers are getting what they need, the technical performance, the cost performance. So in my mind, it always was like a little business in itself. It's like, okay, I, I, I have ownership and responsibility of this team and making sure. And so it was great. I really loved, I loved being a program manager. And uh, so I did that for a few years. And then it's like another whole turn happens. And then I had this opportunity that presented to me to be a financial, a securities and financial representative. And so uh, I was like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, I could maybe have my own 401k team, you know, it, that kind of pulled at my heartstrings because I really did enjoy that part of um, making an impact in people's lives and their family. 
And so I went ahead and left program management and, and went uh, to do that. And that was being on my own. It was a self-employed. It wasn't a, a job. And so I did that for a while. And unfortunately, about that time is when the economy went very bad <laughs> and tanked. And it's like, okay, I need to decide what to do. And then thankfully, a colleague of mine, Keith Saban, who I worked with at that, that, that prior NASA contractor, he called and told me that he and Bobby Jesse, um, who she's, uh, he and she and Keith are the co-founders of JAS Tech, they were going to start a company and he wanted me to help them come run it. And I was like, I'm there, <laughs> sign me up, I'm there, when do, when do I start? Uh, and so that's how JAS Tech was started. Keith and Bobby started JAS Tech and then I started the first day with them and, you know, we, that was in 2004, you know, and it's amazing thinking about how, how much time has passed. So anyway, um, but when we started JS Tech, uh, being a federal contractor, primarily NASA at the time, it was a woman-owned small business. And so the plan was is that Bobby was, when she retired, I was going to, you know, take over the business. So that happened in two, 2018. I took over majority ownership of the business. And so that's where we are now. But I always like to make sure I put in that word to say I'm always so grateful to Keith and Bobby for offering me that opportunity to be a part of this um, from the beginning and having this pathway to where things are now. And, you know, Bobby, Jesse's an incredible, amazing lady. <laughs> and she's, she's um, you know, we still keep in touch and everything. But it's, as you can tell, it's like it wasn't, what I thought I was going to be doing in my early 20s to, to be in a, a NASA, I've never made that connection. And I know for some people it is very, it's like, this is the goal, this is what I'm going for. But I just want to point out to you, you just never know what's maybe going on in your life, what may be handed to you, whether it's health, family, relationships, what, what it may be. So for many times it is not linear and you can't um, always have control of what the situation was. And I think... Um, that moving around like we did, which was unpredictable. We didn't have ch a choice in where we were going to go. It really taught me, too, about markets and and the demographics and how that affects business. Because my husband was also, he's an entrepreneur, too. He has his own business. That's totally different. So people like to joke and say, oh, y'all are two CEO household. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty interesting. But um that I got to learn a lot through his eyes too, um, because the way his company treated it was they, they treated them like owners, like this is your store, you own it, you need to know your numbers, your profit and loss. So we had many interesting conversations. So anyway, just looking back to where we were from our early 20s to now in the buildup, again, I would have never dreamt this is where I would have been. Again, I thought I'd own a business and everything, but had no idea it was in a, you know, my eyes would be open to this world of federal contracting. And so JS Tech, just so everyone knows, JS Tech, we are a federal contractor, primarily with NASA and Department of Defense, and we specialize in occupational medicine, research, science, and engineering. Wow, well, this is very interesting. It's good <laughs> to know. And, and actually, um, so you're talking about learning about the back end of a bank, the parts that people don't really know, don't yeah. really understand. And as we have a bunch of students here at U of H, mm -hmm. eventually they will need to be getting jobs and will apply. And it would be really nice to learn more about the back end of hiring, the things sure. that people don't really know or think about when they're applying for jobs. But before we even step into that, I'd really like to ask, 
What skills, what things have you picked up along the way or learned along the way have served you best in your life? Definitely, that's an excellent question. I would say for sure, uh, communication, that's huge. I, I feel like I didn't really start working on that until I moved to the Houston area where I really had to, to hone that in when I became a manager of people. Um, that was big, but also customer service. And I go back to the bank with that because that's where I really learned dealing with the public. And then it was sometimes high pressure situations because you're dealing with people's money. And so at a very young age, at 17, I got to you know, have to do, you know, people, I wasn't exempt from, from taking the hard customers and, and people who were claiming the bank stole their money. And it's like, well, no, I'm sorry. It's that you overdrew your account because of this, you know, and doing like live on the spot reconciliations of people's checkbook. And I know people don't know what a checkbook is nowadays since everything's electronic, but having to sit there very quickly and show them like, okay, this is, you know, do your calculations right there. And it's like, this is what happened. The bank didn't steal your money and, um, and that kind of thing. So dealing with very sensitive situations in customer service. And I have this, this um, I don't know if you want to call it a motto or whatever, but I see everyone as customer, everyone. All of our employees, our, our customer customers that we serve, the my coworkers, my corporate team that I have, I see everyone as a customer. And it makes it a lot easier because you you want to make sure people are getting what they need, but it's also a two-way street. I have to do my part, they have to do their part, and we hold each other accountable and that kind of thing. So customer service was um, a big thing. And I did mention the fitness business that I had also, um, that kind of tied into customer service too, but having that business as an instructor, I had to bring people to the gym. The gym, you know, they advertise and whatever, but they were expecting me to get people there too and to keep the students. And so I learned at a very young age, because I was about 17 when I was doing that too, about how you treat customers and, and, and finding out what their needs are, because it was not enough that they were coming to class. It's like I needed them to keep coming to class to get what they need. And so the customer service played a lot. And then the, the communication again, too, is like, um, I can't stress enough how big that is. Leadership skills will come along the way. But in leadership, my thing is, is I, I totally believe it's like your leadership ability can only be as strong as your communication ability, too, because they go hand in hand. And so it's so important that people have strong communication skills. And that's something just like with leadership and customer service, it's a lifelong thing. It's not a destination, just like our careers. It's a lifelong, you get better and better and you try to stay where you're at or, and, and get better and better through the years. But I would say that those, and also um, listening is big. I, I didn't really understand until I started to get a lot of uh, compliments from people about my listening skill and I'm like I would have never thought about that but but that is something another skill that I that that I learned but I think that came from the problem solving aspect of things because again in the bank in particular when you have live you know live situations that are going on and people are very sensitive about their money um, is listening what their problems are and, and trying to figure out okay let's this is what I need to help solve this problem and so I, I I just really harken back a lot to when I was younger. It's like those things that I learned so early on play so much of a role now, so much of a role in, in getting that, that repetition and that, that um, experience and keeping it going. It, 
definitely makes things easier. But I would say those things were were very big, um, you know, skills that um, made a, a big difference for me. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. very good to know. And it's good to know what we should be developing and really working on because engineers aren't always known for their communication skills. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we are a steminist in the engineering department mm -hmm. and you're not an engineer. However, you hire engineers. Yes. And as most, I think almost all of us will eventually be looking for a job. I'd really like to hear the back end of hiring as you're talking about the bank. Mm -hmm. So, I'd like if you could go through the hiring process. Sure. So, like, how do you how do you decide you even need to hire someone? Right. That's a that's a great um, question. And you know, in our business, and I'll try to do it from different angles because in our business, being a federal contractor, many positions that we post are totally driven by the government customer. Um, we don't just say, you know what, let's hire a, a microbiologist today. There has to be an identified need or requirement on the contract to do that. We don't have carte blanche to just go, yeah, let's hire this person and that person. And just like in a company, I mean, they do the same thing. Like on our corporate team, there's a certain hiring process or there's a, a way that we identify a need. But then for our customer, there's a way that they identify a need. So. Um, on the, like I said, for us, the government contractor uh, or the government is the one who, who comes to us to say, we have this need and here are these requirements. Internally on my team for my company, absent, you know, away from the, the government, uh, our, our customer needs is that we would do the same thing. If we see that there's a need that's uh, like, we could see that there's a resource that we need because there's either something new that we're doing or that our, our our team is too taxed, you know, things are not getting done and, and that type of thing. Or say it could be a replacement, someone's leaving and you need to replace someone. Um, but, and then there, whether it be from retirement, there's sometimes it could be leave of absences, different reasons that, that people um, may leave. And then sometimes it could be for future or imminent growth that you see coming that you need that, that resource to help you get to that next level or where you're going. So there's many different reasons why um, you would post a job. So the first thing, again, is really finding the, the need. What is, what is the need? Where does it come from? Because again, it'd be nice to hire a, a lot of people, but in accounting, going back to accounting, it's like, you gotta have the money. It's like, you know, you need to have, there, there needs to be a need because there's that cost of money and there needs to be money to fill that need. And so it, it can be a little bit of a process, but again, for us in our government contracting world, it's a little bit easier as far as hiring or knowing when to because the, the government comes and says there's a need. Um, but overall, those are kind of the different, I'd say the, the most common reasons why there would be a job posting or the need to, yeah. Right. Well, that seems reasonable. <laughs> so the, other, the next thing would be like, what's the whole hiring process look like? When you decide, oh, yeah. oh we need a person to fill this role, the how, determining the parameters and then right. how do you find people and and what does it take to to get people in to figure out who's that person it's yeah it's a long process i had to think about this over over the years i mean i've hired a hundred hundreds of people and then interviewed i don't even know the number if it's thousand i don't know but many and so in my role now i don't do it as much i hire in our corporate team, but I'm not as involved in the technical team. So I had to think back and go, let me write notes because it really is pretty detailed because I want to make sure 
that your audience, in case they have not been through the process, and like you said, talking about this other side of it. So um, it, I don't know if it's too much detail or not, but, but I think it'll be helpful. Um, and I think you touched on the right thing about parameters, because the big thing is the job description, because anyone can come and say, oh my goodness, we're busy, I need, you know, we need, a, again, a microbiologist, or we need a, uh, an accounting clerk or something like that. But to me, um, everything, it needs to be quantified in some way, somehow, to say why we need this, you know, the proof that we need to have this, this, um, this additional resource. And the, one of the first things, too, is, is getting a job, you know, putting together a job description. Because if the job doesn't it totally exist already, there needs to be one that's created. And depending on the size of the company, that's usually a, that's HR, human resources function. But like even for JS Tech, for instance, when you're a small company starting off, we didn't have an HR manager. And so sometimes this may fall on an owner or one of the managers or a supervisor or something, but eventually someone has to put together a job description. And part of that job description or the whole job description can become a job posting, which is basically an advertising of a job before you want to get people to apply for a position. So the job description is critical. <laughs> it becomes a part of the, the job posting. So the first thing to start off again is that need. That need has to be identified and again someone from HR or recruiting you know is a part of that and the manager if it's a technical position whoever that person is going to report to they need to be a part of that because they can help set the parameters of what what jobs the skills and experience education or whatever is needed um, for the for the job and, and and actually outline what the what what the job is the task and so from there, it's like, okay, we have a job description, or let's create a job posting. So the next thing you do is to post the job. And so in that can look different in different companies. So like, for instance, most companies that are, that are online, which many are now, um, you, they have something called an applicant tracking system or ATS. And so like, for instance, we have an ATS that's tied to our payroll system. And so we post a job there and it automatically, the, the, our built-in ATS will shoot it out to like say, for instance, Indeed, and some other platforms may send it to different places, um, but it shows up so that it's on our website, so it's public, but then when people see it on our website, it actually takes them to the ATS because you want to track everyone that's coming through the business um, that's applying because for different reasons for compliance, for affirmative action and different things like that. So. ATSs make it very, um, really gives it some structure and consistency about how people are coming and applying through your organization. So anyway, so it gets posted and then sometimes if the job is something that's specialized, because we do have some specialized research and scientists and some engineering positions that come, you may want to go to an outside third party um, job board or even like a university or something, alumni association, or a career center, if it's something, if it's a position that's very hard to a hard we call them hard to fill positions, to to get it um, on in front of people like it could be IEEE or you know different different organizations like that 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 has the kind of skill that you're looking for for some specialized things. So the, it gets posted, um, and no matter where you post it, at least for us, um, the smart thing to do is to have that link point to your ATS because you want everyone to go into you know ATS, that ATS, not just that job that job board and apply. And so um, so it gets posted, 
And then that's where your audience or applicants come in and they see like, oh, there's this posting on Indeed or, oh, there's this posting on Monster, wherever I triple here uh, and different things. And so they see that and the applicants apply online and many of the ATSs now, you can upload your resume or you can enter the information or do whatever. And so you do that. And then on our side, there's, depending on the size of the company and the structure again, there may be a recruiter that that's all they do is filter and look at the resumes. It may be an HR manager, it may be a manager, it may be a, a owner. It totally depends on, again, the structure of the organization. There's going to be someone there that's going, that's going to be reviewing the resumes or applicants, applications that come in. And so you do that and at some point, again, depending on the organization, they may actually do a phone screening of the, the top candidates. They may start from a phone screening there. Some may do it later in the process. So I just wanted to mention that. But basically, at that point, you're looking for the top, I'd say five or seven. I mean, just roughly, so people have a number in their mind, but depending on the response, because sometimes, I mean, you can get hundreds of resumes, <laughs> hundreds, and so, you, you can't contact all those people. I mean, there's no way, um, there's no way to do that. And so again, it becomes the, you know, you, you try to filter down to the, the top, you know, whatever it is, if it's top five, top 10 or whatever. Typically, I would say many companies probably only end up interviewing three, maybe five people. And so that's something that uh, can be kind of pretty daunting. And I, I just went through it myself. We we hired our uh, HR manager, Amy, which I have to give a shout out because she was awesome because I talked through some of these things with her. Um, but like when looking for the HR or HR manager, oh gosh, it was, I want to say about a hundred resumes. And it's very, you know, very different. Some people had a five page resume, some people had a two page. It's very, it's a very long process depending on what the, the type of position is. And so, um, you know, you go through that, and at that point, either the recruiter or the manager, if it's a recruiter, let's just stick, if it's, it's, let's go that route. If it's a recruiter, they may get back to the manager and say, okay, here's, I'm sending you these resumes. These are the ones I think are the best. And the manager may look at them and go, you know what? That, they look okay, but send me some more. So they could be satisfied with what they first get, or they may have to have dialogue to say, you know what, these, it's not really what I was looking for. This, make sure they have this skill or make sure they have this or, you know, to kind of make sure that they're on the same page. And and eventually the interview happens. Um, the, the candidate is contacted, whether it's from the recruiter or again, depending on the company, it could be that manager who's hiring is the person who calls too. Um, but the interview happens with the technical manager who you, the person's gonna report to um, and Again, I should man uh, mention there too, phone screenings can happen at different times too, because some people may want a phone screening to happen um, before it gets to the person that person would talk to, kind of another layer to kind of make sure and filter, you know, who they're going to consider as their top candidates or final candidates. And then, you know, the interviews are conducted and there could possibly, there's going to be some talking and assessment of who was interviewed and sometimes they may be a second interview that or or even a different another layer of management may want to come in depending on again what the structure is of the organization you're in um, we've had people 
who've interviewed and then they have the uh, uh, science level science positions and they have to come in and do a presentation and it totally depends on the need you know of, of what the, the job is and who the customer is and what's going on uh, and sometimes they want people the top candidates to come back and do a site tour or talk to the team that they are going to talk to or, or work with so again it's not always going to be the same it depends on the needs of of um, that organization. So I'm just kind of throwing everything out there in case things, you know, again, just to let people know what could happen. Um, and after those follow-up interviews are done, and usually there are some top candidates, because you you want, you know, you, when there's a final candidate identi identified, that's great, but sometimes it doesn't always work out that, that whether it could be in the salary negotiation, they changed their mind, they got another offer in between the time that you've interviewed them and followed up with them. There's different things that happen. And so um, uh, so some companies may do a reference check at that point or a little bit later, because I wanted to mention that too, that that becomes in the process. Because some will do a reference check uh, before they make an offer, because the next thing that comes is an offer. And I like to say contingent offer, because it's an offer for employment, but usually it has some contingencies. And when I say contingencies, that means some requirements you have to meet in order for it to actually go through. So like a contingent offer for us is that it's contingent upon you passing a background check and also contingent upon you passing a drug screening and also um, contingent upon you um, being able to provide uh, the paperwork showing you're eligible to work in the United States. And that's pretty common for everyone because those are things um, most businesses need. And in some positions, like we do do Department of Defense work where we also may um, put its contingent upon them being able to get a security clearance. And that's a long process. And so you, you build in your offer these things that need to happen for this person to start work, you know, and, to, and for them to get cleared on. And so I just want to make sure an, an offer can look can be many different things, <laughs> um, but basically you have a start date and then from the start date, you know, that's that's where your offer, that's that's getting us up into the onboarding part. So there's a lot of steps that happens in between there. It's uh, a long yeah. process. It's a long one. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Steminist Podcast. Tune in next time where we'll be hearing from more amazing women in STEM. Want to listen to more podcast episodes? Check out our podcast website at www.egr.uh.edu to listen and subscribe today.